Before we begin, it's been reported that the New South Wales Police Force Missing Persons Unit will be shut down due to poor leadership and under-resourcing. News Corporation newspaper The Daily Telegraph ran a story claiming families of the long-term missing have been left in limbo, while unidentified human bones stored in boxes for years have not been tested against DNA. They report a discreet project is now underway to match any long-term missing persons cases. We contacted New South Wales Police for comment and they replied in writing. The New South Wales Police Force is reviewing the operations of the Missing Persons Unit. This process involves examining the current structure, staffing and objectives of the unit. No determination has been made and there will be no further comment until the plans are finalised. If this episode causes you distress, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go online to www.beyondblue.org.au or contact the help services in your jurisdiction. Now, to Episode 7. This is the case of Marion Barter, a mother, teacher, friend, missing for 22 years. You know, no sign that she was going to vanish, that's for sure. The bizarre circumstances surrounding her disappearance. I'm not sure if it was intentional or if there was something more foul afoot. If you could imagine a teacher coming straight from, say, Little House on the Prairie to the 80s, that was Marion Barter. Whether you find Marion Barter dead or alive, I honestly believe somebody has that key piece of information. And the relentless quest of a daughter to find her mum. Something had happened. Something has happened to make her leave. I am 100% sure, 100% sure that somebody knows something. The Lady Vanishes. Episode 7. Hi, I'm Alison Sandy. And I'm Brian Seymour. As a result of fresh information we've received during this podcast, we're heading back to Marion's last known place of employment, the Southport School, or TSS, on the Gold Coast. We've contacted some former colleagues and ex-students who've either reached out to us or been brought to our attention by our listeners who've been in touch. While speaking with them, we've uncovered some disturbing historical allegations about what may have been going on behind closed doors at TSS. Now, some of it happened before Marion's time, so whether it relates to her disappearance, we don't know. Perhaps she discovered something sinister and felt she had no option but to leave. Perhaps not. What these allegations do suggest is that there may have been a subversive culture existing at the school over some time, and a cloud hangs above a number of former staff members. A warning in advance, there is some explicit content pertaining to child abuse. Some names have been removed to protect victims. Other names and comments have been deleted for legal reasons. Who's now in her late 60s, is a teacher currently residing in New Zealand. Yes, I'm still teaching to this day. I love it. In the 1980s, 
and her young family moved to the Gold Coast in Australia. She started as a relief teacher at TSS, but soon became full-time, taking the Year 1 class. She remembers when Marion started work there in the 1990s, although they were at different parts of the campus. For about a year or so, they were colleagues, until decided to return to New Zealand. But I did know Marion, and she was, seemed to be a lovely person, and she set up the, um, the preschool. But that's all I really know. I never, I never really had anything to do with Marion. I wasn't a friend of hers or anything. I think I sat in a few staff meetings with her, but I, I never had any um, dealings with her on a one-to-one basis. As mentioned in earlier episodes, a man named Luke Glover was hired as master of the preparatory school. While he was apparently supported by Headmaster Bruce Cook at the time, as other staff have already said on earlier episodes, he wasn't popular with his colleagues. This is how remembers him. I personally didn't have any issues with him, but he was a strange man. I actually didn't leave because of him, but a lot of staff did. But he was a very strange man. He did lots of stupid things. Well, what I considered to be strange things. He put all the year eights with the year ones and, and had strange ideas. I wasn't particularly fond of him. And during her time, she discovered there were other serious issues at the school. No, I really loved working there and I loved the boys and I loved um, working at the junior school. It was great, but um, it did have a, have a few problems. Disturbing events that still trouble her to this day. One incident that I knew of included um, a group of boys and the teacher was a man called Mr Houston and he was found to be, well, touching the boys in his class. There was about eight boys and um, the school totally rejected it when parents put their names forward and asked. Well, anyway, he was, he was, I actually am quite, um, quite funny about talking to you about it because it's very personal to me and I get a bit upset. But my son was one of the boys who he, um, who was, who was, well, I suppose you could say molested or indecently touched by Mr. Houston. And um, I complained to the school about it, and they did nothing. And they just totally rejected it. But Mr. Houston was stood down. I, I, I made complaints and about it, and I wanted my son to have some um, counselling, and I asked the school to pay for it. But they wouldn't, because that would be admitting something on their part. So I had to um, have him counselled because he wouldn't leave my side for quite a long time. He was very clingy. And um, there was a group of parents. They didn't want to put the school into disrepute, so they didn't take it any further. And um, it was all wiped under the carpet. Indirectly, I suppose, I thought I I might lose my job if I did anything else about it. His son was only six years old at the time. His teacher, Brian Houston, was an older man and not to be confused with the Hillsong founder, Pastor Brian Houston, who is still alive. This Brian Houston has since passed away. became concerned when her son suddenly started exhibiting extreme behaviour. My son suddenly wouldn't leave my side. 
I, I couldn't even go into the kitchen and he'd be running after me. And this was not like him at all. He was just... And then if I ever was late picking him up from school, he'd be absolutely terrified. And, he, and the teachers couldn't do anything with him. He'd be screaming and crying. So she took her little boy to the doctor who had a chat with him and found out this. She asked him about school and did he like it? And he, no, he didn't. He, he liked it, but he didn't like his teacher because he used to sit him on his knee when he was reading in books and put his hands down his pants. Mm, and that's what, that's how I came to find out about it. Mr Houston used to sit them on his knee and, and put his hands down their pants and fiddle with him. Took the issue up with the headmaster. Mr Cook at the time, he was the headmaster, he knew, because I wrote a letter to him wanting them to pay for my son um, to have counselling. So they all knew about it. She also alerted others in authority at the school. Reverend Stonia, and he he um, told me that, oh, he was absolutely shocked about this and never heard of anything like this before. Teacher Brian Houston was sent away. But the matter wasn't taken to police, nor was anything done to support the families involved. Life at the school continued as usual, as if nothing had happened. It wasn't long before Houston was back again to help with the school play. They didn't get rid of him totally, which I was absolutely horrified about. Said Carrie Orwood, another senior staff member at the school, advised her of this. And said, oh, I can't believe what I've heard. She said, um, Brian Houston's back at TSS. And I just, I, my blood curdled. And I thought, well, what's he doing there? You'd never trust anyone like that. And I thought, how dare they let him back after what he did to those little five-year-old boys? How dare they? I contacted Miss Orwood, who told me she doesn't recall. However, she said she did contact Education Queensland after hearing that Houston was working at one of the state schools in an effort to have him removed. Apparently, Houston died not long after and her son continued on at the school for a number of years without further incident. Just to let you know, her son is now a working family man with a happy life. though, still beats herself up about what happened 30 years ago. If I, if I knew what I knew now and had my life experience behind me, I would have definitely done something about it, but it was, I was just so horrified. And as for suggestions noted in earlier episodes that Marion may have interfered with children, is resolute. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's, that, I mean, she was such a lovely person. And no, not at all. That is, I mean, that is absolutely no. I can't, well, I mean, I, I can't imagine that in a, in a million years. She won this award. Well, of course she would. She was just so good. Other former colleagues have also added their voice in support of Marion. Lynette Allen reached out via Facebook to defend her former teaching partner's name. They worked in the classrooms alongside each other in the early 1990s in New South Wales. She just did so much extra. She went over the top. Like I said, the school we worked at was very difficult um, and some of the children were very, very difficult, but she, no, there's no way. It was her passion. She was a really, really wonderful teacher. And like I said, um, very friendly with the parents as well. 
you know, they'd come in and they'd and always had a smile and, and a, a hands-on person. You know, like if the kids had come, they'd all give her a, a cuddle and, and all this sort of thing when you're allowed to cuddle children and when you're allowed to, um, you know, pat them. But never saw her do anything untowards towards children. And now the um, motto is 20 is plenty for kindergarten. So meaning 20 children for kindergarten. We've had up to 31 children and with kids of special needs in our class. So you can understand this is a, it's, you know, it's pretty hard on teaching sometime and um, never, even with children, sometimes they would even kick you and hit you and punch you. I've never, ever seen her raise a hand to a child. It must have shocked you and then to hear that um, someone had accused Marion of inappropriately touching boys at the Southport School. Absolutely, absolutely. And another reason, I mean, this doesn't sound too good, but um, the type of parents that you're dealing with in the Southport School, you touch their little Johnny, I can tell you he's going to go home and tell mum or whoever's looking after him and, um, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. In regards to our little kids, when we had them, like sometimes they come to school so they didn't have to get hit. Do you get what I mean? So uh, there's no way. If she, and when she was dealing with these difficult children, she never, ever raised raised a hand. I mean, she would raise a voice a bit, but it was always uh, just it, just a bit stern, but she never yelled. She wasn't a teacher to yell, ever. I was angry about it when I heard it, I, and I just thought, there's something very funny uh, uh, that's uh, happening at that school. Yeah, we can't, we can't find any official record of her um, no, abusing boys. No, it's got to be documented. I mean... Like, it, it, you might, uh, it's, it's a lot harder, it's a lot more difficult now because, like I said, the kids used to come in in the morning and sometimes, um, like, Marion would be the only person that spoke to them and not at them. Do you get what I mean? I'm not talking, we only had, say, about five out of the 31 that might have been a bit difficult, but they're the little ones that demand all the attention and, um, you know, I mean, she was very, very kind to them. She was an AP, so assistant principal, and she was in charge of the discipline policy down in the infant. So if we had kids in trouble or we'd, we'd withdraw them, we'd share them, we'd send them to another class or something like this, and never was any kid scared of going into Mrs Barter's classroom. While more people have spoken in defence of Marion, we've uncovered even more allegations connected to TSS. Andrew Morse was a student there from 1973 to 1981, well before Marion's time. However, he says his recently deceased adoptive father, Ronald Morse, was a respected master at the school for close to 40 years. He retired in 1997. That's the same year Marion disappeared. Andrew's not sure if his father knew her well or not at all. He'd lost contact with Ron Morse by then. We're about to reveal why. Be prepared. It's pretty confronting stuff. And there's some swearing as well. My school experience was fine. I wasn't academic as such. I was more sporting. My problems at school were related around um, the high uh, reputation that um, the school and other teachers held my father in. Um, And I didn't live up to that expectation. Um, And I sort of found it hard with subjects that um, I didn't do well in. Uh, Teachers sort of gave me a bit of a rough time. Whereas, um, as opposed to teachers I had for sports uh, that I got along well with, no problem at all. By and large, I didn't have uh, a great deal of problems at school. There was a lot of bullying um, that went on. That was just part and parcel. Um, but overall, my school experience at the school was fine. The, um, the issues with my father relate to our home life. Um, my father was the one who said, 
sexually and physically abused me from around about the age of six. My abuse didn't happen at the school. My abuse happened at the home. So my abuse from my father, he was an intimidating man. Uh, we used to get cane quite regularly at home. Uh, my father used to bring the canes home from school. And, and back in the day, we used to go to uh, circuses where the big, um, and they used to have different toys and ornaments for sale. And one of the things my sisters used to get was um, like a sheep's hook cane with a doll on it or a fairy on it. And he used to rip the dolls off and he'd use them to, to belt my sister with and myself. I'm so sorry, Andrew. Mate, what was your father's name and, and what did he do at TSS? Uh, Ronald William Morse. Um, he was a master in charge of grade eight. Um, he was uh, an English teacher uh, at the time I, I've known him. Um, I believe he taught other subjects uh, prior to sort of my, my meeting him. He, he was uh, my adopted father. I mean, Peter Jackson, now he was at school when I was there. Peter Jackson was two years above me, I think. Um, and, uh, and then went on to join the police force and, and sort of football uh, played with Mount Meninga. Peter Jackson, or Jacko as he was known, was a very talented and popular Australian rugby league player in the 1980s and 90s. Jackson saw the gap and went straight through it. He took his own life in November 1997, amid claims he'd been the victim of child sex abuse at his former school. Because of Peter Jackson's high profile, his tragic story has been widely reported. However, there are some names about to be raised that we are concealing. They're also alleged victims of child abuse and they are still alive. Here's Andrew again. There's certainly a, a culture of abuse that went on, both physical and sexual, at the school. It's got to have been known by a number of the teachers, but I think it was such an inbred culture, and, and I think it went back decades. What's since transpired out of all this muck um, is back in 91, somewhere there, uh, there was an allegation against one of our other uh, family members and uh, was dismissed. We believe that was in retaliation. Um, what happened during that course is how I found out that my father had physically and sexually abused other students at the school. Really? At, um, at the TSS? Yeah, and what happened was I'd come home from just giving a statement to the police in, in this matter and um, he asked where I'd been and I told him and I was sitting down in the kitchen, he was in the family room and he was drinking and he was shaking and uh, you know, I said, what the fuck's wrong with you? Uh, all, all the muck and the shit that comes out of this uh, matter um, is going to destroy the family. And I, I just said to him, I said, what, the, what are you rambling on about? And he says, all of the muck and the shit that comes out of here to destroy the Panthers. So I heard you the first time. And he said, oh, I've done some bad things. And I, I'm sitting there just saying, what are you trying to say? And he took a sip of his drink and he said, oh, I've molested and abused boys at TSS. Oh. He said, was one of them. Just back at the school, Andrew. Yep. Um, what did your father actually do and how many boys did he abuse? I don't know. Um, that was the first I heard about There's since been allegations that um, he used to take back then. He was a boarder at the school in the late 60s. Did two or three years there um, and then was asked to leave. Uh, but from my understanding, that was prior to him being married to mother. He'd physically abuse him and sexually abuse him. This is the allegations uh, and the suggestions that's been put to me since. Are you comfortable talking about what he actually did? How did he abuse boys? abused the others. Mm. Um, my understanding, he, he, he physically molested them um, and raped them. I don't recall being raped. Now, we've also chosen to edit out some of Andrew's allegations. They are very detailed, extremely disturbing, and they may upset some listeners. We are also aware that not all of our audience is over the age of 18. What you're about to hear is still very confronting. We were five or six years old, maybe seven years old. 
The first time I recall him actually abusing me um, was the first time I'd gone out to my uncle's property in Western Queensland. But that's the first time I recall actually being molested by him. I slept in the same bed with him out there. And he says, just our little secret. Uh, a, a typical statement that, you know, I now read in, in have done for years. And this is what abusers do to their, their people. They make it powerless. You're not to tell anyone this sort of stuff. And I got the same comments from my father too, you know, and he threatened us. And I was scared of him back in those days. Um, at the moment, I'm putting pen to paper to mum and explaining to her exactly what happened, why I used to have nightmares, why I used to wake up and call out for it in the night. Um, because I had nightmares about these sort of things. And Andrew, um, when he was at the school, as you say, he was, um, what, the master in charge of Year 8? He, he was a master in charge of Grade 8. I, I, I couldn't tell you for how many years. As the master in charge of Grade 8, how could your father think he could get away with molesting boys at such a prestigious school? I, I think there's a culture there. This stuff was happening, I believe, well before he married my mother. Um, I, I believe he started in the school in the late 50s or early 60s. I, mem- I remember him telling me um, a random conversation at some point in the past that um, they used to line the kids up at night time and they'd get one of the, you know, cane across their ass at night for good measure and they'd be naked. So the boarders used to get lined up and cop one for good measure to keep them in line. Now, this is stories he told me that, that when he was a housemaster at the school. How long was your father at the school for? Um, uh, 38 to 40 years, and he retired uh, from memory about 1997. He retired, uh, it was about three years short of his legal tenure, where he would have been forced to retire by age or uh, I forget what the requirement was. And do you think so he was he, molesting boys that entire time, Andrew? Uh, listen, I don't know. Um, uh, he, he stopped abusing me. I'm just trying to think. I, I became very violent as a result of it. He, he stopped amassing me around 12 or 13, I think, because I started getting a bit more vocal and proclaimed to stand up for myself. But where things finally came to end, because he, he'd walk past you and, and give you, I guess, what we call now the denozo slap across the head, except his would send you a bit sideways. It wasn't just a slap up the head to wake yourself up. It was a full-on belt. Um, he used to be good at slapping across the face. As I said, he brought canes home from school um, to discipline us. Um, and he... he um, he had a crack at my mother about the food that he'd just been put in front of. And as I walked past, I was about 19 or 20 at the time, maybe 21, and I just turned around and lost it. I was bouncing in nightclubs. And I said, what did you say? And he said, it's none of your business. And mum said, leave it, Drew. I said, what did you say? So I repeated, I just went berserk. I remember kicking the table into him. I threw the table out of the road. He went backwards off the chair. I picked him up, threw him into the corner, just started belting and kicking the shit out of him. There was never anything more said about it. I kept the peace simply for my mother's sake. I, I know very little about my father's involvement in the school other than, you know, he's a master in charge. He was held in high esteem. You know, they had a house named after him, which was the Ron Morse house, which has now since been disbanded. Um, that was done under some sort of cloak and dagger many years ago. Mother got an email from one of the marketing ladies who knew her and said, oh, they got rid of Morse house. I believe now, thinking back, they were aware that there was sexual abuse allegations on foot or they'd been raised and the house was removed, the name was removed from the house. And do you know whether or not your father knew Marion Barter? Uh, I wouldn't have a clue. Dad retired in 97. Marion was there that last few years of his tenure well, there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, I don't know. As I said, I don't know too much on that's gone on at the school since I left it. Um, more so since my father's left the school, I, I really had no involvement with the school. It's, it's, a, it's a strange scenario that this lady has disappeared with some of the allegations 
reports that have allegedly been put forward about what um, she may or may not have heard or seen or been involved with at the school. Didn't know about the lady. It's a bit like the King's School in Sydney or Cranebrook, I gather. It's an elite school where the leaders of tomorrow are groomed for greatness. Uh, that's how it's sold to the parents. Um, how would you describe the Southport School? Back in the day when I was there, the school prided itself on uh, academic, um, but you seemed to went a lot further if you were sporting. Uh, we had a lot of um, good boys came out of the school uh, that were both academic and sporting and have gone on. Bill O'Chee was in my grade, um, went through to be a senator. Uh, was in politics for a long period of time. Um, so that the school has bred and raised some um, our future leaders that have gone on to do things both sporting entities too. So the school has a culture there that's yeah, well entrenched within sports and academic leadership across the board. Um, and I think that is one of the great traits of the school. The unfortunate side of things is there's a real dark history to this school. Um, and it, it certainly has to have been covered up. It just can't have gone on for this period of time um, and as I said, it, it had to have been going on back in the 50s and 60s. As I said, I, I know my father was, um, through his own comments to me, was involved in sexually and physically abusing boys in the late 60s. I know that because one of them was and he was at the school in the late 60s. Um, I, I believe there's allegations that goes back to 2008. I, I, I'd hate to see it hard to believe that it sort of started in the 60s and stopped in 2008. I, I have a feeling this was something that was started back probably when the school was first sounded um, and went back right back there. Of course, these people aren't alive now to, to tell the tale. Um, but certainly the ones in the late 60s, the, the trouble with them, as I believe, he, he doesn't want to come aboard, he's ashamed. I sort of spoke up because uh, it, I would thought I was the only one. It wasn't until my father raised up to me that I realised that he had done this to other students. So I was none the wiser. I just thought this is him just abusing me. He's just a, a prick, you know. Um, but then I realised I wasn't the only one. The and sad thing for me is that I actually spoke to the chaplain at the time, um, Jim Stonia, when I found out about this on two occasions about the allegation that my father had abused other students at the school. This was after my father told me, and he brushed it aside. And when was that? Um, that was after I'd left school. So this was after I'd given a statement to the police. I rang Jim Stonia from my parents' house. What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, it, it would have been in the early 90s. In the early 90s, you complained to the school chaplain that your father yeah. had abused other Jim boys. Stoney, I, yeah, I considered Jim Stoney a friend. I've since done work on his house. Um, he's since denied the allegation I've spoke to him, and that's his prerogative. Um, I know for a fact I had the conversation within days of, of my father telling me this, about he had sexually and physically abused other kids at school. And just to point out, if you recall our earlier interview with the former TSS teacher and colleague of Marion, she also mentions that she reported abuse to the same chaplain, Reverend Stonia. She says he met her claims with disbelief. Andrew Morse says the same. The chaplain would not believe his allegations about his father, Ron, who was held in such high regard. And the perfect example is me speaking up to Jim Stonia. Trusted man, he was our reverend at school, didn't do it, I didn't believe in religion, still don't. And that was in the early 90s, he just he fobbed it off. That was early 90s. Andrew also contacted the police after his father revealed he'd molested other students at the school. And how far did you get with making a complaint to the police? Um, we'd made a, uh, a booking to go in and see them, and then that got cancelled 11th hour. Um, I made another one when I was going to be back home, um, and I rang to talk to them and I gave them some details. And they didn't seem real interested, didn't want to take a statement. Um, I haven't tried since. What do you think should happen here? What, what level of review 
and inquiry do we need into the Southport School? I, I think there has to be an open and thorough investigation. Um, whether that can be achieved, uh, I don't have a, a lot of faith in our QPS. Um, you know, they can solve cold cases and, and kids disappear in some of the old-fashioned murders. But I think when it comes down to um, child abuse, particularly in institutions, it's, I think it's a bit bigger of a fish for them to, to play with. I think it opens up Pandora's box. Andrew has also posted his claims on the Lost Boys of TSS Facebook site. As a result, he's been contacted by old classmates, some of whom have trouble believing the allegations. When he rang me after the, the, you know, I posted the thing on Facebook, um, I think he was hesitant. But when I sort of went into the details that I had with you just now, mm. um, he was lost for words. Um, he, you know, he said that, well, you know, we were in each other's houses seven days a week, Drew. We never saw any of this. So I said, but the same thing, if I'd come to you and told you and your parents, you wouldn't believe me. He's a mate who's known me for years, yet he was having struggles to believe because, again, they held this person in such high esteem. And then so did his parents and so did other colleagues of my father at school. Um, and this is the problem that victims face, is that you've got this person who's um, held in high esteem. I couldn't possibly be even him. What the fucking well was. Um, and I think um, that was part of my coming forward and putting details up about what had happened to me. It brought a lot of people forward, and a lot of people I'd known in the community um, and growing up going, they had no bloody idea. And, and this is the problem with it. It is, it is shrouded under a, a cloak of secrecy. I was told by my father, you're not to tell anyone this is our secret, and, and there was a bit of a threat there that if you told me one, you know, I'd be hurt and all the rest of it. So there's that control you have over an younger age. Now I don't give a shit, and I, I got to the age now I am me, and, and I don't care what people think about it. Worst case scenario, there could be a, a, a long list of boys your father's abused. Why wasn't the Southport School investigated during the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse? No idea. This, this could come down to the power of it wheels. There yeah. is old boys of significant power and wealth. It just seems there are so many, well, boys now men coming forward uh, that it seems incredible that this hasn't been uh, exposed um, before now. I, I think, um, having been a victim of abuse by my own father, I sort of learned to deal with it over the years. I think the stigma attached as a victim trying to speak up and, and be believed is the biggest problem. As you hear, I am 54 speaking about it to the police. They don't want to know about it. We've been in touch again with Bill Edgar from the Lost Boys of TSS Facebook site. What's the purpose of that page? What is the Lost Boys page about? Uh, it's, it's really about all the abuse that uh, I sustained at the Southport School. Um, to be honest with you, I thought I was the only person uh, left surviving as a, a victim of abuse from the school after a friend of mine, Peter Jackson, took his own life. He's the Australian rugby league legend. Which is coincidentally the same year that Marion went missing. That's exactly right, yes. So I, I tried for years to get the school to acknowledge the abuse I sustained and, and they just wouldn't. And to, even today, they still don't. They still remain silent. Yet I set up the Facebook page and I've spoken to well over 130 old boys. Um, quite a few have now engaged shine lawyers. Police have stopped taking statements, uh, which is ridiculous. I don't understand that at all. Money, power, fear, 
There's a lot of high-profile people at uh, well, Oboys from CSS. You know, the school's very, very powerful. I mean, it's, it goes without saying, it is the only boys' school on the Gold Coast, but it is, uh, yeah, holds a lot of power. I guess I should ask you, and I don't know um, if, if uh, you're comfortable talking about this, but what happened to you at the school, Bill? At the age of 12, I actually won a five-year fully-funded scholarship to the Southport School. And uh, it, was a, it was something that was a great achievement. Back then, I was very, you know, happy. I was being abused at home by my grandfather. We uh, lived in government housing. We had nothing. Um, I came from nothing. Um, I was gifted in, in sport and, and a few other thing, areas of life. I won this scholarship, and my first year, I was introduced to a, uh, a teacher who... He had the infatuation of molesting me, putting his hands up my shorts, having me sit on his on his lap, uh, things like that. Uh, that was my first introduction to the school in that year, and that went on for quite some time. Whilst that was going on, in between, I was actually physically abused by another teacher. He demanded that I sit in the corner because he didn't want to teach an idiot. He, he actually nicknamed me, uh, you know, a charity case, which became well-known around the school because I was uh, you know, from a broken home, government housing, and he didn't want to teach a charity case. He didn't think I, I fit in and I shouldn't be there and he shouldn't waste his time teaching me. Uh, that became very hard. Bill claims he's reported his abuser to police, the Education Department and a Royal Commission, but there has been no investigation. He did, however, receive the following email from Rod McLarry from the Anglican Diocese in December 2013. Remember, the Southport School is an Anglican school. Dear Mr Redker, I write to you as the Director of Professional Standards for the Diocese of Brisbane. First, I apologise to you for the harm you have experienced within the Church. I understand that you have been in contact with Mr Greg Wayne at TSS about the incidents of sexual abuse which you suffered when a student at TSS. I understand that you may have concerns about the response to date from the diocese. It would be helpful if we could discuss your concerns in detail to see what may now be done to ensure that you are satisfied that everything possible has been done. Mr Wayne says he tried to contact Reverend Jim Stonia, the former chaplain at the school, to find out what he recalls about people who confided in him. However, the Reverend can't recall anyone telling him anything. Bill says he ended up in jail after going off the rails as a teenager and he contemplated suicide in his 20s. Standing on the roof of uh, a high-rise in surface, uh, just about ready to jump, but instead I wanted to pretend to fall or I lay on the edge thinking that if I just roll over I'd go and... uh, Looking down and seeing some kids playing tennis and their mum and dad running for the ball and getting them a drink, I'll never forget that. And I wished I had a family like that. And I stood back and I went, yep, that's what I'm going to do in life. I'm going to have a family. And And if I die for my family, then why wouldn't I live for them? And do you have a family now, Bill? I do, yes. I have a loving wife uh, who's been with me, funny enough, since I was... Yeah, you know, 17, 17 years of age. So, yeah, well, we have two grown-up uh, children and I've just uh, just had a grandson, so, yes. It was an impact that hit me so strong later in life. You know, or mid-30s, it hit me big time. 
And that's when I decided, enough, enough. I've got to get onto this. I've got to get rid of it. And if it's just me, fair enough. But if it's not, if I find one more victim, then I'm going to pursue this. Did the Facebook page and found over 130 victims. Yeah, I'm pissed off and I'm going to keep going. Bill Edgar is now a private detective. It was through his Facebook site that Bill first found out about Marion Barter and he became intrigued. He also heard of Luke Glover. Well, this is... Luke Glover was... I guess people will tell you he's a psychopath, a narcissist. He's, uh, he's infatuated with women at the school. He was married with his children at the school. He lived at the school. Bill says he also tracked down Bruce Cook, the headmaster at TSS, during Marion's tenure. I spoke to Bruce Cook. I confronted Bruce Cook in a um, shopping centre on the Gold Coast Runaway Bay Shopping Centre. He's a um, he's a JP actually. He does you know science documents and that sort for people. And I confronted him there. Um, I walked up and asked him if he was Bruce Cook. He said yes. I said uh, former principal of Southport School. He said yes. He said you're an old boy. And held his hand out. I shook his hand. I said, yes, I am. I'm actually the lost boy of TSS. He said, I have nothing to say to you. I said, oh, so you've heard of me? He said, yes. I said, can you answer a couple of questions for me? And why did, and there was questions like, why did Marion just leave? Why did she get up and leave? Did Luke Lovett spread rumours of her being a pedophile? Was he the pedophile? You know, because she wasn't, you know, taking his advances. Who knows? And the problem is, is Luke Lovett's dead. So we can't get anything from him. I mean, what Marion went through at that school, um, people aren't talking about it. Um, they're fearful. Even today, people are fearful. Do you think she could have been threatened? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, she was threatened. Have you got evidence of that happening with anyone else? Is that what happens? Is that how they do it? I haven't got evidence. I do have people that, I mean, they've, they've come forward and said, yes, we've been forced out. Um, Will they go on the record and say that? I don't know. We've tried to get in touch with senior figures, past and present, from the Southport School to get their response to allegations of abuse, but also to find out what may have caused Marion to suddenly quit and leave in a very short space of time in 1997. I emailed and phoned for Greg Wayne, the current headmaster of the school, on numerous occasions but there hasn't been a response. However, he is quoted in an article from the Gold Coast Bulletin on June 2nd, 2017, which refers to a letter he wrote to all former students. In it, he reportedly calls on TSS old boys to come forward if they or others were sexually abused, urging them to contact police so they can receive care and assistance. It's apparently as a result of claims made on Bill Edgar's Lost Boys of TSS Facebook site, and Mr Wayne reportedly refers to some of the posts as dubious, saying the posts purport to be from old boys. He reportedly wrote that he wanted to assure former students that allegations would be dealt with properly. Hi, you called Greg from the maintenance department at the Southport School. I also left messages to speak with groundsman Greg Edwards. Hi, Greg. Alison Sandy from the Seven Network again. Hoping I can catch you. I'm he went out with Marion a few times before she went overseas and apparently still works at TSS. But again, no callbacks. Luke Glover, 
the master of the preparatory school, who worked closely with Marion, but was unpopular with some of his peers, as already mentioned. He is now deceased. However... Hello, Sandra here. I have tracked down his widow, Sandra, who has since remarried and is now living in New Zealand. Sandra doesn't want to discuss her late husband's role at the school, because that was separate from her. She says Luke was Christian, but not part of the exclusive brethren. No, no, he's never an exclusive brethren. He wouldn't be allowed to teach. I'm telling you, he would not be allowed to teach at a private school if he's in the exclusive brethren. And as a man, what was he like? Was I mean, was his persona, I guess his professional persona, different from his personal one? What was he like as a dad and a husband? Uh, oh, he was very good and um, very, very devoted. Um, but he was, he did put a lot of pressure on himself and he did... Um, He didn't suffer fools gladly. He liked the very best. He liked being the best. Sandra also remembers Marion. She was a brilliant preschool teacher. We lived next door to the preschool at TSS because my husband was a housemaster and he was also headmaster of the prep school. She was a really great teacher. She taught the four-year-old. She used to babysit your kids too, right? Uh, Occasionally, yes. Not a lot, but um, sometimes I would leave them with her, yes. I had no problems with that. She was very reliable, very responsible. We had a couple of meals at her place as well. Yep, absolutely fine, very capable, and she was quite a good friend. And did she have a farewell or anything like that? Do you remember her leaving? Or Yeah, uh, yeah she did. I do remember before we left, I just seem to remember meeting with a whole lot of mums and deciding on what present to get to. Now, that's something that does come to mind. We We had a morning tea on the Gold Coast, and it was like someone, one of the mothers said, oh, this is what we've got, Marion Barter as a farewell gift. So um, the reason I remember is we gave her these two, this mother had these two plaques, to, you know, to put on the wall, and Marion, after she got them, she really liked them, but she said, look, I'd, I really don't need them, so I want to give you one, and I want to give another mother one. And I know Marion gave her one of the plaques, and she gave me the other one. I've still got it in my lounge room. Now, why didn't she say she needed it? Was it because she was going away? I think it might have been because she was going away. Sandra doesn't recall her husband, having a falling out with Marion? No, not, not, no, definitely not. Marion was one teacher that he just loved her enthusiasm. He loved her ideas. She was always, her classroom buzzed, and that's the sort of teacher he was when he was a teacher, and he could really identify with that. So, no, she was probably one teacher that he always felt really happy with. I don't recall, I might have forgotten, but I don't recall any falling out with her. While Luke was there a few years longer than Marion... He left in 2000. TSS was the last school he ever worked as well. Yes, about that year he left TSS, he died. Yes, so what happened? Um, I've heard varying stories. He just um, died of an aneurysm. Was he driving? Because I I heard that he had a car. Yes, yeah, he was. And um, and then he he crashed a car. Just just basically, yeah, he, he died, went very quickly. That must have been devastating for you and the family. Yeah, yeah, the kids were just um, quite, um, so we were in the, he was just applying for jobs and things in New Zealand and looking at, you know, different things he'd like to go on to, so sort of an in-between stage for him, really. And he would have been how old? 42, he died. And how old were you? 39, yeah, yeah. But I've remarried since to a great chap, so... (laughs) Another person we really want to speak with is Bruce Cook. As already noted, he was the headmaster at TSS in the 1990s, who hired Marion 
and was still there when she left. He's since received a Medal of the Order of Australia. We also believe he's part of an organisation known as the Order of St John, an elite group established in 1969 in Australia that, according to its website, seeks out people who are prominent in their profession, community or local affairs, and who actively support charitable works. Nominees are brought into the order at an annual investiture service based on a traditional Christian ceremony. New members receive a white cross of Almalfi and the red robe of the order, and membership is bestowed for life. We want to speak to Bruce Cook because I believe he has a uh, very good knowledge as to why Marion Barter left her job at TSS so hastily all those years ago. He may be one of the only people who actually does know. So we give it a shot. This isn't our first attempt to speak to Marion's former employer. We approached him for interview via the Corumban Wildlife Hospital, where he's a trustee, but we're told he didn't want to speak to us. However, our investigation has now reached a point where it would be negligent of us not to try harder to get some answers from him. After being let into the complex by a friendly neighbour, we knocked on Bruce Cook's door. Bruce? Nola? Anyone home? Hello? Looks like no one's home. We will keep trying. The lead police investigating officer, Detective Gary Sheehan, has also spoken to some of those who once worked with Marion. Yeah, the Southport School, I went up there and spoke to teachers. Unfortunately, when I got there, a lot of the teachers had left and didn't know a great deal about Marion, but there were some people that I could speak to. I accessed their records. Uh, I spoke to um, teachers' credit union, um, the medical, teachers' medical um, health service. So, look, I... The fact that she was reported in New South Wales, I don't think has been an impost on the investigation at all. I, my, my bosses were very accommodating in allowing me to go to Queensland and, um, and speak to all these people. And when I do my checks, I make sure that I do checks Australia-wide, which includes Queensland and every other state and territory. How often do you think you might have gone to Queensland on this case? Oh, Once or twice? No, no, I would have said up to a dozen times. So, as I said, you know, they were, they were very generous in allowing me to do that. But it's something that I think that everybody understood that in order to try and work out what was happening, for Sally's sake, it needed to be done. And just um, on the uh, Southport School, we, we just mentioned it. I mean, there were the rumours. Now, we talk about motive, about why someone might want to flee their life, and you know, you're no doubt familiar with the rumours. Yes, I am, yeah. There was a persistent rumour that something inappropriate may have happened with Marion and one or more of her students. Did you find any evidence of that? Um, could that have played into any decision Marion then took? There was nothing or anybody that suggested to me that um, that was a major factor. In fact, when I went to the Southport School, there wasn't anybody there that could remember it. There was one person who I was particularly keen to talk to because Sally had indicated that um, Marion had had some sort of, um, well, I suppose you'd call it friendship, but I don't think it was a, uh, a pleasant friendship. But unfortunately, he passed away. So I never got the opportunity to speak to him. Uh, and the people that were left at the school had very little knowledge of uh, any sort of bad words or 
bad um, uh, situations that Marion had become involved in at the school. They always, for those who could remember, remembered her as a very pleasant, uh, efficient and um, very good teacher. Just a nice person to be around. If Marion was in trouble or if she'd found out something and felt threatened, is it possible that she went into hiding with help? Perhaps into witness protection? Dr Phil Cowalik was a member of the Australian Federal Police for almost 35 years. He retired in 2014. In his PhD thesis, he critically examined the witness protection network in Australia. Well, there is a federal program. There's a national witness protection program, but each of the states also run their own witness protection programs. And I was reading a bit with the Queensland system... um, and where it's appropriate to offer witness protection, it, it's not as a reward for information, is it? So it's never as a reward. The, all of the legislations talk about um, witness protection not being offered as a reward, and it's a, it's a foundation philosophy of the programs that it's not to be uh, presented to uh, a witness as a reward for giving evidence. And why are they offered witness protection when they are? Generally because there's a, uh, a verifiable threat to their lives or their safety uh, as a result of something that they've seen or evidence that they could give. And what sort of form would that witness protection take? Well, there's some various approaches to it. Uh, at the lower end of the scale, it might be um, monitoring by uh, a local area command, for example, uh, ranging right up to... Uh, re-identification and relocation depending on the seriousness of the offences, the um, the nature of the threat, the value of the evidence that the witness can give in court. There's a range of other uh, prerequisites that have to be met before a commissioner can uh, agree to bring a person into a program. And in terms of relocating and, and changing someone's identity, um, how, how difficult a process is that? How long would that take? It's... Uh, dealt with on a case-by-case basis, obviously, and the difficulty comes down to, for a start, the age of the person who's coming into the program, uh, the extent of their, um, of how well they're known within the community, their social media profiles, a range of other uh, factors, how well they're known within uh, criminal circles or, or other circles, um, but it's quite difficult. You can imagine if you needed to be included into a witness protection program yourself. It's a matter of giving up everything that you've ever known, including your name and your history, and trying to build a new history in a new name in a new location uh, where you have very little support, no friends, no uh, no relatives other than perhaps immediate family. Uh, so changing somebody's name whilst outwardly is quite uh, is, is not too difficult in an official capacity. The thing that makes it much more difficult for the person themselves is that whole psychological effect of, uh, of losing their previous identity. There's a coined phrase in the US about um, death and rebirth of a witness, uh, and it's, um, it's a difficult thing for people to, to settle into a new life with a new fabricated uh, history. Does the candidate get to choose their name and their location, or is that assigned to them? There's generally a negotiation around it. There's, um, you know, you wouldn't want somebody choosing a, a name that's well known in the public. Uh, so you do what you can to try and minimise the impact uh, to the witness. So the name needs to be a fairly bland 
name that's not going to, uh, to attract a lot of attention. And in terms of the location, that's a difficult one because the witnesses come into the program because they're under threat and you have to do a lot of research around where is likely to be a safe location in terms of the syndicates that they're giving evidence against. Where is a location that, because of their own history, may well be able to settle in, um, you know, socioeconomic, demographic, ethnic mix and population in those areas. So there's a lot of work that goes into trying to identify uh, a location that's going to be suitable for the person to go into. Direct answer to your question, no, it's not entirely up to them to say, I want to be called this and I want to live there. Once a person has their identity changed and they're relocated, who has access to that information? Uh, the police who are providing the protection package. The uh, legislation calls for a, uh, a register of witnesses including, included in the Witness Protection Program and that's only available to police officers working in that section. So nobody outside of it has access, not even family, uh, family, immediate family, for example, uh, a wife and children will often be included in the program with the witness, but further than that, the family is generally not included and not given details. Any contact that they have is through special arrangements that the police put into place. Under what circumstances can those with access to the register find out a person's new name and location? Uh, generally, if they're the case officer or uh, the, an assistant case officer, or they're for some reason involved with that particular witness. Otherwise, there, there should be uh, a firewall between anybody else in the working in witness protection and that particular witness. It's treated very much as a uh, on a need-to-know basis, even within the, um, the unit itself. And what happens if um, the family really push and um, push for police, they find a sympathetic officer who approaches them? Is it possible for them to get that kind of access? Well, you can't say that it's never possible, but it shouldn't be possible. If they do, then there's an immediate compromise to the security of the witness and the process of re-identification and relocation may uh, have to restart. And how often does that um, person's identity or location get compromised? Seldom. Uh, but there have been occasions uh, that I'm aware of when uh, identity and location has been compromised and uh, and as I said, the, uh, the re-identification and relocation process starts again. We generally think of people in, in WITSEC as um, mobsters or, or people turning on the, the family or, or the, the criminal gang or enterprise they're a part of. Is that overwhelmingly the, the, the case? Um, from my experience, it's that way more than any other. And what about individuals, ordinary normal people who happen across extraordinary circumstances and have information that could put them at risk? How often does that happen? Uh, well, I, I can't really answer that. Um, but it does uh, I happen? Know, I know there are occasions when it has happened, yes, and uh, it's an unfortunate circumstance for, for the individual. So we don't have any evidence that Marion Barter entered witness protection other than she did change her name by deed poll and did travel back to Australia on a passport that has since lapsed and has not been renewed or left the country. Um, given that we know that name, I'm guessing that would rule her out of being involved in, in a witness protection program? Oh, no, it wouldn't. Um, if that was her real name, it wouldn't... Um wouldn't rule her out. It would depend on whether the new name that she adopted through the deep hole process was known, uh, and then it would also depend on what her circumstances were. You see, 
Um, being included in a witness protection program is entirely voluntary. Uh, people can't be forced to go into a program. Uh, and once they're in, they can leave at any time. Whether they get to keep the new name or revert to their old name when they leave is uh, is a decision for the commissioner of the police force that runs the, the relevant program. We do have the name that she changed to, Flora Bella right. Natalia Marion Remekel, and it's an odd-sounding name, but uh, that name doesn't come up on any searches uh, that the police say they have done or that we've done. Oh, she may well have changed to that name through deep hole somewhere and then changed again somewhere else to try and put an extra step between her and her original name. Well, it's all about covering your tracks. But there, you know, through deep hole, there are other ways to do it. It's much more likely that you'll be found out going through a deep hole process. But the uh, the whole foundation of witness protection is re-identification and relocation, and in doing that, uh, keeping the person safe. So that means protecting the new identity and location with as much rigour as you possibly can. So the, the, the suggestion that um, has been raised with us is that Marion may have come across something possibly at the school where she taught, assuming, and this is completely hypothetical, Marion came across information that a teacher, a senior person had been guilty of that sort of crime, would that then qualify her for witness protection? Just because she came across the information and was prepared to give it to police, um, no, not generally. It would, you know, there, there needs to be a threat and there needs to be a reason for inclusion in the program because of the, uh, the difficulties associated with uh, entry into witness protection. And is there any way of, of getting a, even a ballpark figure on the number of people in WITSEC? Well, it might be somewhere around, uh, you know, between 100 and 500 a year um, who are in the program. Uh, now, that means that some, as I said, some stay in for... Uh, for a decade or more, uh, it just that's not a figure that comes in and out of witness protection every year. It might be that there's somewhere between that figure nationally in witness protection programs, but, you know, I couldn't be sure. So ultimately, if you had to guess, based on what you know about Marion Barter's disappearance, what chance would you say there is that she somehow ended up in witness protection? Uh, I'd say it's slim, given what you've been able to tell me and uh, given no indication that there was a threat to her personally, uh, I would think it's um, it's slim chance that she's gone into protection. Yeah, I think I think you might be right, Phil, but it's, it's one of those avenues that we, we wanted to uh, investigate and look at in, in terms of even just potentially ruling her out. Could you categorically rule out the possibility of Marion being in witness protection? Oh, no, you couldn't categorically rule it out. There's too many unknowns in the scenario. Just as we had finalised putting this episode together, we heard back from the Anglican Church in response to historical allegations of child sex abuse we've uncovered. They have asked us to read the following statement in full. The Anglican Church urges anyone who suffered sexual abuse in any Anglican school or parish to report the matter to police and or to contact the Anglican Church Southern Queensland Office of Professional Standards to receive the assistance, support and care that they require. We regard any professional misconduct or claims of sex abuse as a serious matter and in recent years we have strengthened considerably the policies and procedures that are followed when misconduct is reported. Student protection is a key responsibility of each Anglican school in southern Queensland. 
Schools working together with the diocese have in recent years achieved a consistent student protection policy and framework which exceeds community standards and expectations. Anyone with claims of sexual abuse can seek redress through the National Redress Scheme from the Anglican Church Southern Queensland, which is a registered scheme participant. Next time, we head back to northern New South Wales with Sally to follow up on a tip that Marion may have become involved in a sect. I felt like I wanted to be sick. I, didn't, I don't know if I'd worked out what words I was going to say. I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say to her. But our initial inquiries don't go down too well. G'day, mate. There's no, no, nothing, nothing, to be, nothing to be worried about, mate. Just, just relax. I, what if I don't want to be filmed? If you knew Marion or have any information about her or her whereabouts, we'd love to hear from you. Our website is sevennews.com.au forward slash the lady vanishes, where you can also email us. Oh, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. Please rate and review our series. It helps new listeners find us. Presenter and executive producer, Alison Sandy. Presenter and investigative journalist, Brian Seymour. Producer and writer, Sally Eels. Sound design, Mark Wright. Transcripts, Charlie Daly Watkins and Alice Sinclair. Graphics, Jason Blandford. This is a Seven News production. <laughs>